and welcome to Lily High on Life. Our guest today is Sergio Brodsky. Sergio, welcome. Hello, Lily. Thanks for being for inviting me. Really happy to be here. My pleasure. I found you so interesting. I went to a couple of lectures that you, um, workshop lectures that you created on marketing and branding and found not only your lecture interesting, but you as a person, absolutely fascinating. Your accent is from... Brazil. Thank you. And, um, With you, a few stops along the way. Yes, and it's those stops and the landing in Melbourne that are also so interesting. Yeah. And you've got a family, you've got a wife from Melbourne. Not really. My oh. wife actually grew up in Kenya. Really? Yes, she was born in Israel, but when she was a baby, two, three months old, her family, her parents moved to Kenya and she grew up there until she was 17, 18. She only came to Melbourne later in life. Yeah. How fascinating. Mm -hmm. And you've got two children. Three. Three? <laughs> Three children. Tell me. Yes. Uh, Gabriella is the oldest. She was born in Australia. She's 14. Sammy is uh, the Samuel the boy is, uh, is uh, going to be 10 in uh, two days and he was born in England and Kiara is the baby and she is just nine months old and she was also born in Australia. How fascinating. So your wife was born in Kenya. You were born in Brazil. One child born here another child born in the UK and the third child born also here oh yeah. what a shame you're not all different <laughs> oh yeah I mean when, when, when it, it used to be the case that every time we would go on a trip international trip we would have different passports and every time we were stopped you know what is it is a family of spies is the general <laughs> assembly of the UN happening in front of me so yeah it's funny but uh, makes life more interesting it does in yeah. fact my mother was born in Poland my father was born in China, in Harbin, north of China. Wow. I was born in Russia, and my sister was born here in Australia. So we had a similar thing, not there so you go. many. The wandering Jews. <laughs> the wandering Jews, indeed. So at the moment, tell me about what life is like in Australia for you. Well, it's much better than it was uh, just a year or so ago. Uh, we definitely have a lot more freedom right now. Uh, I just got back from an incredible holiday. I, we spent two months as a family across the Americas. We went wow. uh, from Melbourne, we went to LA. We spent a week in LA. Not a place that I would like to go again, to be quite honest, but was interesting. It was my first time in LA, been to the US many times. Uh, and there, from there, we went to Brazil, where my family is. We spent about five weeks in Brazil, traveling Wonderful. around, uh, spending time with family, friends, speaking my language as well, uh, listening to a lot of music, music and eating great food. We then went to Argentina. We spent the last two weeks there between Buenos Aires, the capital, where my dad is from. And then we spent a week in Patagonia, the south of Argentina. Wow. We went to Bariloche, which was stunning. One of the most beautiful places I've been, for sure. So, especially after the lockdowns and everything that you alluded to, to spend that much time just traveling and on vacation, and interacting with people that you really love and appreciate. Mm -hmm. What was that like to be able to do that? Because you've also worked hard, you've also had responsibilities. Mm. What was this time like for you? It's like opening the, the tin and realizing you're not a sardine anymore. You can be a human, a human being. Uh, was very refreshing, actually. It, uh, it, felt, it made, you, made us feel alive. 
uh, we actually had to change our you know this this trip three four times because of the lockdowns and everything that was happening in Australia especially in Melbourne so uh, as much as you know two months away not working with three kids is a lot of money is a lot of time you know you just have to do it and leave a little bit pierce the bubble and get out did it did it um create new insights into both you your wife personally because your kids are growing and changing always but uh you and your wife did you just have new realizations and change what you were thinking for the future for you and your family yes yeah i mean uh, for sure look we we spent the past you know two years three years confined in australia and as big as australia can be it is so remote it's so far from everything and you know it's uh, very lightly populated so the big island really feels like a tiny island and getting out to the world and you know being in touch with new cultures different cultures again like we used to be gives you a lot of, of perspective and makes you feel like uh, there's a lot more you know to the world to be explored are but you gonna stay in australia that's a very good question too but just to finish my answer in in turn you know what what we felt when we returned to australia was uh, a lot of appreciation and gratitude to to live in a place like melbourne especially after being in sao paulo post covid because uh, brazil is a, is a country of contrasts and sao paulo the main city is where you're going to find all of that but uh, and as much as you know there's a lot of poverty and it's visible and it can be quite graphic as well uh it it was always present i grew up with that i was robbed more than 10 times in my life so um, it's not it's not nothing strange to me but right now it felt like a zombie apocalypse the the degree of poverty wow. the number of people camping under bridges with tents families living under bridges and the dirt the smell uh, the sites they were just horrible horrible uh, so it felt good to come come back to Australia felt good to come back to Melbourne to you know civilization that was that what you know how, how big the shock was uh, but on the other hand like I said you know Australia feels very insular very parochial so it's good to get out and you know see the world and uh, take some risks did you feel and this is you know I'm not pushing you in any way shape or form but I know you're extremely creative you've worked for corporations around the world large ones and everything so when you go through that experience now the way you described it do you think about things you can do to help change or not or is that for another time of your life no for sure I think uh, necessity is the mother of all inventions and when you see you know people going through this kind of stuff really uh, yeah, you definitely think about, you know, how else can I do something to, to affect change? I, I work in marketing and I've been building brands for the past 15 years or so. And I know that many of these brands are very, very successful. They have, uh, you know, gigantic market cap capitalizations. However, the type of consumption that they encourage can have many externalities, can have many issues associated with that. Because of that, and that happened about four years or so ago, I developed a new approach to uh, building brands, which is something that I coined urban brand utility. 
and it's fundamentally about addressing the growing pains that cities are facing right now. We are living in a, in a time that many scholars call, you know, the, the century of the urbanizing century, the urbanizing planet, because uh, around 70% of the world's population live in cities. So everything is felt and seen through the, the lens of urbanization. And advertising happens, is concentrated in cities. And the role of advertising really is to stop you on your tracks, to interrupt you. But what if advertising could be used to enhance a moment by solving a public utility problem and communica communicate you know, the message of the brand or the product that they are trying to sell? I'll give you a very simple example, you know, and then we can move on to something <laughs> else. But you know, since you mentioned about seeing, you know, seeing poverty and coming up with solutions and using marketing creativity, I think this is a very good one. And the example that I have is uh, from uh, 2015 when an Indian energy company called Halonix, they decided to relaunch the brand. And instead of taking you know, the traditional selling by yelling approach that many utility companies will take you know, with promotions, deals, and just flooding the market with ads, they did something a bit smarter. They, uh, you know, Delhi is known in India as, as its rape capital. I think every two, three minutes a woman is raped or there is some sort of violence happening there. They were able to identify that the streets with the highest incidence of raping, crime, violence are, were the dark streets. Streets with not enough uh, uh, you know, po light, light poles, street lights and things like that. So th they decided to counter that by deploying LED billboards that lit up at night with you know, a message from the brand. And that was a, a campaign, a program called uh, Safer Streets. Uh, in doing that, they haven't only relaunched the brand in a meaningful way, but they, they enhanced a moment. Instead of interrupting people with a message, they are making uh, uh, dangerous streets a lot safer. They are replacing the need, or at least supplementing the need for extra policing, social workers, and even emergency rooms in the case of violence with a very simple advertising solution. Because when you have light, violence won't happen. So it's, it's going to decrease the number of people going to hospitals or having to see a social worker, a psychologist, uh, having issues, you know, personally, professionally. So, and that has a huge impact when, uh, uh, for a city when collecting taxes. Did they promote this was part of what, why, what, why they were doing it? That was exactly why they were doing that. And something quite unprecedented happened after that. In a, in a day and age when everyone hates advertising, you had other eight states in India begging Halonix, please roll out your campaign in our state as because well. Because I imagine that these were not the target audience or the prime locations they would have chosen for advertising but because of the underlying reason for doing it they were perfect yes so there is there is a social aspect to that with this which is you know solving a pressing societal issue and i saw i could see myself as someone that uh, would uh, would would have a benefit from that i've been robbed you know more than 10 times yeah a few of those times at broad daylight but many others when it was dark uh, so, uh, if yeah. uh, and, and that, that, that actually actually happened to me, 
back in 2002 when Brazil was going through its major energy crisis. I was uh, I was walking back from university, going home, and I my parents. That's where I grew up, where they live now. It's a really nice area. It's uh, you know it would be an equivalent of a Manhattan in New York is where my parents live in Sao Paulo. Very nice, very safe, very decent, but. At that time, during one year for intermittent periods in that year, the grid was switched off. So as soon as you know the sun went down, everything was dark. I, I you know, I was walking back home at one a corner. I got stopped by a guy who jumped off a motorcycle. He approached me with a gun. He hit me on the head. I fell. He took my backpack, only to rob a book, a CD. And a towel. I was coming back from some athletic oh, training. How did that make you feel the first time that happened? Very vulnerable, very vulnerable, uh, unprotected, unsafe, uh, scared, and uh, it's 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 crazy because you know the the first few things that you think of is we need more policing, we need less poverty, but uh, maybe something simple like a billboard that you know lights up at night is pretty cool. Could could do the job. So what happened after the third or fourth time you were? Um, accosted? Uh, well, I fell on the ground when that happened. Uh, they took everything. I walked home. And, was it a uh, different feeling? Was it different thoughts that went through your head? Was it less scary or just as scary? It's always as scary because it's so unpredictable. You never know what can happen. You never know if the other person is, is drugged or you know is having other serious issues, not just, you know, not having enough money to spend. And uh, there could be a lot of, you know, passion involved in that. And so it's, it is scary. It's always scary. And so what I'm hearing you say is it's just the same the first time or the 10th time. It is. Uh, there was a week that I was robbed twice. And uh, on the second time, I got very angry and very annoyed. Uh, and there were like three guys, they were a bit smaller than me. I kicked one and I pushed the other. They decided to leave me, which was a very stupid thing because what you learn is never react, always give whatever they ask. You don't know who might be holding a gun, a knife, or you know who else might be around you that you can't see. And what did you have to say to yourself to allow yourself to go out in the street again or to live normally again? You just have to live life. And keep, it was, keep calm and carry on. So it was just uh, something that you naturally, normally did. For whatever reasons, and being robbed is not the only maybe traumatizing thing I've experienced. I had like much worse things, but somehow I blocked. That. I understand, but so what? Where I was going to go with that also is that this is when you were quite young. This is still when you were living in Brazil. Yeah. But then you went to Israel. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so I'm sure that after your army training and after things that happen in Israel, you feel stronger, better, not as anxious about being attacked. How did that all change once you learnt some real skills? To... Yeah, so a couple of things about Israel. The first one is that I never felt unsafe. I was never robbed in Israel. Never happened. So I didn't have to fear for that. I didn't go to the army, by the way. I worked with a military company when I was there, but I never went to the army. I was never trained by the by the IDF. Um, but I did learn many skills there <laughs> as well. That's that's what happened. <laughs> sure. 
so no, Israel wasn't a place where I felt unsafe and that wasn't an issue at all. Mm. Yeah. And so, you know, sometimes in life, life throws things at you that you never expect, which is basically what happened to you because you were asked to join a military unit that you had no um, idea or no consciousness that it even existed, let alone that mm -hmm. <laughs> that you could actually help them and train there. So um, tell me a little bit about, well, first of all, what it was, but more about when it was offered to you and you were still quite young and not fully into any career path and everything. How, yeah. how did you make the decision the, to, um, to actually go with it and accept it? So I had, the reason I moved to Israel was because I got a scholarship to do a master's degree in cognitive science. My, you know, my background in Brazil, I studied law. I used to be a lawyer. I practiced for a couple of years before moving to Israel. We'll forgive you and I, I believe you can get over it. <laughs> we can. I, I did already. I changed careers three, four times, so that's fine. Uh, but I moved to Israel with the intention of, you know, f furthering my studies and uh, didn't have a horizon after that. I was too young, too silly and too hungry for adventures. And uh, one given day, I receive a call from this guy who is the test pilot of this drone manufacturing company, a high-tech military company. And he says, oh, hello, are you Sergio? Yes. Uh, well, I am best friends with your flatmate. And he told me a little bit about you. And uh, I think I have a job for you. <coughs> I told him. <coughs> Sorry. I told him I, I'm studying and I have a, a part-time job. <coughs> which is working for me now so not interested maybe another time uh, and they said no 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 let me explain to you and then he told me he told me the whole story and he said that the client was actually Angola the country of Angola and uh, in Angola they speak Portuguese so they needed someone who could speak Portuguese aside from that because he is Argentinian and his Hebrew wasn't great but he's an amazing pilot I need someone who can speak Spanish on a daily basis so I can communicate with this person directly. And we also need you to speak English and uh, a little bit of Hebrew. And uh, if you have a background in IP, and I, I heard that you do, that would be great because that's what we need to ensure that the technology is not uh, copied, violated when we're transferring to this country. And it's a pretty significant project. So I was hired as a business consultant slash many other things. And these are probably things that I cannot tell you, uh, but I've seen a lot, I've heard a lot, I reported a lot as well. And it was fascinating, not because of that, but because I love innovation. And uh, like it or not, every single significant innovation is going to come from the battlefield. Because like I said, initially, innovation is the mother of all invention. So your mind, cha you, you changed your mind more because of the description of the job or because you could see they actually needed you in Israel and you would make a difference. Because of the adventure. Yeah. I wasn't, I, I, like, I learned how this type of technology makes a difference. You know, it's modern warfare. Instead of destroying an entire civilization, you go to the enemy cell. It's very precise, surgical almost. The, 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 you know, the casualties 
are uh, greatly reduced because of that. But you know, it's still war. It's yeah. still, you know, it's not a, it's not a nice thing. But I wasn't really concerned about that. I just wanted to uh, enjoy life, go crazy, see and new did things. You? <laughs> Absolutely, one hundred percent. I've seen many things and I've done many things that I would not have otherwise if it wasn't for this opportunity. And but when that particular opportunity uh, ended, then you didn't stay in the area. You also ended your yeah. job and yeah. relationship. Yeah. So that project went for a couple of years. During that time, I fell in love. I met my wife. She was doing something completely different from me. Uh, and um, she, her family lived in Australia at the time. And the idea was, well, my, your contract is finishing. My contract is finishing. We're getting married. Australia is a nice place. Shall we give it a go? Sergio, what does falling in love like that mean, especially to somebody who was looking for adventure and was a little bit wild, which I can see you still are? How do you fall in love with somebody? I hope Andrea listens to this. <laughs> uh, I think, I think is when you when you lack any comparative basis to explain what you're feeling, what you're living, what's going on. And uh, I just couldn't compare Andrea to anyone that I had met in the past. And it was a whole new game. Uh, so it wasn't about what you were thinking in your head. It was about feelings you were having in your heart. Yes, the feelings were primary. The thoughts came after. Yes. Right, right. And that's the thing a lot of people have a problem with. They, they stay in their head. They don't allow themselves to get into that feeling place where they really can fall in love. Yeah, but I'm a Latin American man. I okay. feel everything. I feel even <laughs> more than I should. But you also want to be free. <laughs> yes, but uh, that that was, uh, I never felt freer than that because uh, you can only experience freedom with responsibility and few things would require more responsibility than getting married. <laughs> That's true. So uh, I felt very free. I felt so like I was making my own decisions and living my life. And you continue to feel that way? Every single day. <laughs> well, you know, you know what marriage you is wouldn't like. You tell know, some me. days are better than others, but uh, yes, uh, it's a constant. And, yeah. you've, and your wife, you obviously get the same vibe from her back as what you're feeling. Well, that better be the case. <laughs> <laughs> but you stay plugged into each other's yeah. feelings rather than bullshit that goes through your head sometimes. Of course, yes. Because especially with kids, there's a lot of bullshit that goes on. A lot, a lot. But uh, no, we... Uh, because I feel so much and I'm so expressive, uh, nothing goes, you know, no, nothing goes under the rug. So how do you flip from technology to advertising? It's not a natural line. Yeah, so when, when I came to Australia the first time, I spent three years working in a pretty large retailer here. And one, one of the things that happened was that the company was restructuring itself. And as part of that, they had to adjust the brand. They had to refresh the brand. Not really about changing colors of the logo or things like but that. But what was your job? Like you came in and took a job as what? My job, I came in a condition of, of a business improvement manager. Ah. My job was to learn everything about this business, bottom up, top down, sideways. And after three years immersed in the business, I was going to be part of a team or leading a team that was going to be expanding this business overseas. That was my job. I came I've here never to heard of that 
position. Mm. So was it through someone you knew or was it an yeah. advertised position? Yeah, or? it was uh, through someone I knew uh, that was recruiting for that. There was an introduction, a few conversations, many emails exchanged, a bunch of calls. I came to Australia before I got hired. Had a, I love that. That's yeah. such, to me, that's such a wonderful common sense position and I've never heard of it before. Mm, yeah, I think some roles when you are investing a bit more or when it's a bigger bet, it's probably worth, you know, getting to know the candidate a bit better and Absolutely. having a, a more uh, uh, inter iterative, iter iterative process. Yeah. Mm. So, but anyway, back to the brand, uh, I was, you know, doing my job and uh, uh, halfway through a year and a year and a half in this 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 role they were they were doing this restructuring and uh, i was told that because my role was so all-encompassing and brand you know needs to be across everything and not just a logo on a paper it's it's it's, it's what informs your culture is what informs your products your services how you develop your people your culture your processes everything uh they said you go and you do this thing that I had no idea what that was about and we'll give you whatever support you need. Making a long story short, I fell in love with that. I think that's the whole combination of strategic thinking, creativity, communications, the commercial implications involved in that were things that kept me very stimulated and engaged and uh, was like a light bulb moment that I decided that this is what I want to do when I grow up. And at that company, they didn't have any kind of brand manager, head of brand type of roles available, but I really liked it. And my role was becoming a bit boring. And that was also due to the global financial crisis because all of the ideas of expanding that company went down the drain. They lost a lot of money in like three, four days because of that crisis, the GFC in 2008, eight. yeah, eight, eight, nine. Uh, and so that wasn't going to happen. I was fortunate enough to keep a job, but was boring, not for me. And so that was when we decided to pack up, move to England. I did my MBA. I majored in brand strategy and innovation. And straight after my MBA, I got my first agency job. I was the worldwide strategist of Super Union, part of WPP, which is possibly one of the top three or the leading brand consultants in the world and already started with a global position, which was fantastic. Wow. Um, also through someone you knew or recruited or found it yourself? Or? I didn't know anyone there. I sent an email. The, the, the global head of HR is a global company. She said, wow, I loved your email. You sound very eloquent. I'm going to invite you for an interview. And uh, actually, I just I was just in London three months ago and I met her. Ten years later, I said, I need to take you out for a drink because uh, you opened a door for a new chapter in my life. And I'm forever grateful for that. We had a couple of drinks. It was great to reminisce those days. Uh, so, no, I went on my own. And yeah. your wife was working, found work and everything as yeah, well? Yeah, she did. She did. When we, the first year when I was studying, when I was doing my MBA, we were living in Durham, northern England. Beautiful, beautiful city. When we were living there, Durham was actually voted the most beautiful city in, in the UK. They, they have the famous Durham Cathedral built in the year 900. Anyway, uh, worth the visit. And my wife, she also works in communications, digital marketing, and that's what, that's what she was doing there. She was working with this design communications agency there. So how does a hot 
cold-blooded, exciting Brazilian live in a place as st- live and study in a place as state as England. It's interesting you say that because from the moment that we landed from from the cab driver being a Jordi, something that I didn't even know what that was. What Jordi is, is, is the person who is from uh, Northern England. Oh. So that's the nickname that they have there with an accent that was incomprehensible. Uh, I didn't know what he was saying, but you know, he eventually took us to the right place, to the student accommodation where we lived for a year. But I felt England in general and London specifically very, very interesting. It was like walking on the pages of history books. And London, after Durham, we moved to London, is a city that has so many layers of history, culture, diversity. It's a city that speaks with you. Living in Melbourne, you have to go to places. When you're in London, wherever you are, something is happening. Mm. Yeah. I found that in Melbourne. There's always something happening here. But you have we'll to go talk a bit later. Far. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mm. That's that's really fascinating. Mm. And so the decision to come back to Melbourne was... Was, so uh, I was, so I left Super Union, I spent a couple of years with them, and then I moved from brand, working with, in brand strategy to working media strategy, which is, I see as the two ends of the marketing spectrum. You start by building the brand, and then, you know, after you do that, you need to build audiences, customers to buy from that brand and that's what media does and that's what I wanted to learn and I learned on the job I applied for a role in the global business unit of Procter & Gamble that at that time and maybe still today was the world's largest advertiser they would spend about uh, I don't know three billion pounds a wow. year yeah so you have your own business now that now you created tell yeah. me a bit about that it's a brand strategy and foresight consultancy it's called surge advisory it's Serge after my name, Sergio, that's how people call me, but it's with a U, S-U-R-G-E, because it's a lot of energy. It's like a surge, a jolt of energy that we give to every client, every project that gets out of the door. And it's the promise that we, that we make as well, that everyone is going to feel excited with what you have now. And it's very different having your own business to getting a salary every week or couple of weeks. Yes, it is very different. Talk to me a little bit about that, especially with a family. (laughs) Uh, I think that nothing can replace the flexibility that you have running your own business, being, you know, making your own decisions when, where and how you want to do things. But on the other hand, the uncertainty uh, of running your own business is is very taxing and uh, doesn't make anything perfect you know it's just different i think it's great to have the experience of running your own business and working for someone else because you can do things better so who are your clients now just in australia or global or we have clients all over the world actually uh and they are as big as the united nations as small as a tiny brewery in tasmania okay and uh, uh the work we do allow us and i don't have any kind of prejudice about that as well some some agencies some companies they only want to work with blue chip companies or medium size i like diversity i like the challenge that it brings so wherever there is money 
we, we, our doors are open for business. Do you have a staff or do you bring on consultants as you need them? How did you structure that yeah, so, so that every, it's comfortable? Yeah, everything happens, you know, the modern world is fractional, right? So it's a fractional hiring, fractional participation. I have a network of people that I built throughout these years working in the industry, people that I trust, people that I admire and respect their work and their, their style of working as well. So I bring them along depending on the project. So it's by brief. If a project requires a creative director, a UX designer, a researcher, and maybe uh, uh, someone to manage campaigns, I have all, 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 you know, all of those people are in my stable. Let's put it this way. And if it gets bigger or smaller, we can always do that. So while you're away on this extended vacation, the company still continued with people that you trusted and yep. you didn't close down or anything mm -hmm. like that. Yep. Which I think was one of the very few blessings of COVID that you know we, we can live borderless. Yes, people learned a lot of new skills and a lot of and found they had a lot more resilience yeah. than uh, than before. Yeah. As yeah. well. Yeah, I think you know we started to trust that we can all be grown ups and responsible for what we need to deliver. Yeah. Let me talk to you about family for a little bit as well too. Um, well, first of all, what's your connection, your personal connection, and how do you feel? in terms of your relationship to Judaism and being Jewish? Ooh. Uh, <clears throat> I, once, I once heard from someone, my dad is Argentinian, tango is you know, the typical music from Argentina, and I, was, I think it was an interview that I was listening and was a, a tango composer and someone asked him, you know, what is your relationship with that and what does it have to do with Argentina? And he, he had mo already moved to France 20, 30 years uh, uh, before. And he said that every time that he listens to tango, it's like a chord is, you know, is struck in his heart. So every time there is some Jewishness around me, I may not understand, I may not realize, but something touches me in, inside. And I, I feel that connection uh, and I feel this connection in a way that I cannot explain, but I understand this connection in a way that it was told, taught to me. And that was, you know, the one single event that made us who we are, which was Mount Sinai, when the entire nation was there. And if we are just a fragment of those souls, this is, this is the connection that I feel to Judaism, one that is between me and God without intermediates and uh, one that started at that point in time. And were you, were you raised Orthodox or did you keep no, Shabbat or anything? I was raised uh, as, I guess, traditional. Yeah. Uh, always had a Jewish identity. Uh, Brazil has a pretty strong, vibrant community. Yeah. Uh, people, people don't know. Um, and your wife me, as well? Yeah, yeah, my wife also. My, actually, my wife grew up uh, a lot more religious than me. I had a pretty, I had to adjust myself when we met, but growing up, no, was very traditional uh, when we, for example, during Pesach, uh, I wouldn't eat bread, but I would eat matzah with ham and cheese. <laughs> I so. actually understand that. Mm. <laughs> um, and so did that change once you started having children? It started before. It started when I moved to Israel. When, and I was very curious. I was very interested really? to learn about myself, about my identity. That's part of who I am. 
And I purposefully moved to Jerusalem. I didn't want to go to Tel Aviv because, uh, well, I mean, it's, I don't want to go to uh, Middle Eastern Miami. <laughs> right. I want to, you know, to drink from the source. I want to see what the real deal is like. I actually lived in the old city for six months. Wow. I went to Yeshiva there too. I was learning there too. I was like, you know, I was back on the derech, as, as many people would say. Um, but what's interesting as well is, you know, what many people ask. So uh, how come you didn't become religious or how come uh, you went and then you came back? Uh, I think everyone, every person has, has their own personal experience and that was mine. Hmm. Yeah. And, and, and now uh, your Shomer Shabbos and your <clears throat> kids go to Jew? Now, now my, well, my, my daughter goes to Beth Rivka. My son goes to a non-Jewish school. Uh, the baby is the baby, she's home, <laughs> uh, but we, we have Shabbos every Friday, I don't keep Shabbat 100% strictly, we make many concessions. But you do the high holidays. We do the high holidays, uh, we do keep Kashrut to an extent as well, I think we do most things to an extent, because... Uh, you stopped eating ham? Yeah, no, I don't eat ham, <laughs> I don't eat pork, and I stopped doing that a long time. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So a few things, and which is very, really weird. You know, it's like this subconscious. Jews are weird. Yeah, Jews are Jews. weird. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You've got Jews that keep absolutely nothing and eat ham every day, but they feel very Jewish and they're connected to Israel. Yeah. And yeah. then you've got the ultra orthodox, and then they've got a hundred sects as well. So yeah, it's... true. So I think, like I said, it's it's all about your personal experience between you and God. Absolutely, and you. Um, how many brothers and sisters do you have? Are you one of each, one brother, one sister. Sister. Yeah. And are you all good friends? And do you have the same kind of mindset? Do you I am believe? I'm very, very close to my sister. That is twelve years younger than me. Uh, we have a very similar mindset. She actually works, you know, in similar area that I do. Uh, not close to my brother at all. Yeah. And one of the reasons I ask you about that is because. I loved, because it's just my heart, that you actually speak to your mother every day, <laughs> no matter where you are in the world. Tell me about that. I think that, you know, we're talking about values when you, you came to that master class, right? And uh, my explanation of values is it's something that, that costs you something, but still you will do it because you value that. And family is something that I value a lot. Family is what is possibly the thing that I value the most, you know, I, I, of course I value human life, I value my life, my, my kids, my wife, but family is, is, you know, would be on the top five of, you know, what do you value the most in life? That's one of them. <clears throat> and, uh, and I know how dedicated my parents were in my upbringing and uh, all the hardship that they had to go through to give me what I had. Uh, and you know, I'm only here because of that. And, my own personal effort, but you know, that was the foundation that enabled everything else. It, I just, I would just feel, you know, I don't, I won't, I won't say guilty, but I just feel like I own that. That's the least I can do. I left, you know, I'm out. I'm, I'm, I'm not your son. I'm the world's son now. And I know how much it did hurt for my mom and uh, how concerned they were. I had a whole career that I gave up. I was a lawyer. I graduated. I was the valedictorian of, 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 my, of my year. Wow. I gave a speech to 5,000 people. My, my dissertation became a book that was published. I was wow. doing very, very well. I had friends that I grew up all of my life with. 
I had a very uh, incredible social life. Uh, my family in Brazil, they're all lawyers. For me to succeed in that field, you know, it's, uh, it's half of the battle already. And I gave up because I hated that. I hated it. But I love my family. So I didn't want them to feel that I left because of them. I left to find what I had to find. Did they understand that at the time? Not in the beginning. It took some time. It took a couple of years. Because yeah. I've got to tell you, I um, you know, uh, even when I was li living in Melbourne, I left school, I got a job. My mother would call me every single day at work. And it used to annoy the hell out of me because I'd be in meetings or whatever. And one day a light bulb clicked and I thought, you know what, I'm so lucky to have a mother who calls me that that switch in the moment I also talk to my mother every single day, no matter where I am. Yeah. Because you realize that it is, that's the most important relationship and you don't know how long you've got them for. Exactly. And uh, yeah, so uh, every moment, every day matters. And uh, I just want to make sure that, you know, I'm there for them, despite yep. being, you know, so far away. Yep. <laughs> I would be in big shot committee meetings with people and my mother would call and I'd say, gentlemen, excuse me, but it's my mother calling from Australia and this is a priority. I won't be long and I'd take the call no matter what when it's my mother. Yeah. So I loved hearing that yeah, about yeah. you. Look, uh, in, in Brazil we say amor só de mãe, which means love only from your mum. Yeah. Everything else is an illusion. So yeah, and like having children, I can really relate to that because right. it's truly unconditional. Kids are yeah. the most fun. I yeah. mean, just yeah. gorgeous. And mm -hmm. every moment and every year is better and better and better. Yeah. So that's why I've got to take a lot of videos and a mm -hmm. lot of photos true. and everything like that. Very true. So I also want to ask you, because of your age and you're only your early 30s. No, I am actually 42. Well, I'm going to be 42. Seriously? I yeah, didn't work that out properly. If I look 10 years younger, I'll take it. Because you're in the space that you're in, and the tra I'd like to get your um, take on all this wokeness at the moment. Things like the, just even gender, we can't define what a woman is, to the fact that, you know, you've got men saying, identifying as women and being allowed to do that. Um, just... Talk to me a little bit about, as you see that unfolding around you every day, how do you feel about that? Yeah. Can I swear? <laughs> <laughs> sure. I can bleep. Okay. It, it's fucking ridiculous. It is annoying. It's stupid. It's criminal. It's a criminal agenda that, as we were discussing just before, you know, started in academia. And I saw those episodes happening. I've been following that. I saw what happened with Jordan Peterson. I, uh, a couple of years, three years ago, I had a, a podcast, a video series as well, where I interviewed uh, Professor Gad Saad. He is a public intellectual figure. He's very well known. He's been on Joe Rogan's podcast six, seven, eight times. So, and he is one of the people that have stood up against, you know, these, uh, what he's called the abyss of lunacy. That's what he calls that. This whole political correct correctness uh, 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 way of being and like training people to be anti this or anti that is just so counterproductive. But how do you explain 
corporations, which you understand, corporations taking this on? Yeah, uh, it's madness. It's madness. Uh, but there is a, a sentiment that uh, certain mi minorities, they need to be recognized and uh, portrayed in a way that feels like they are better. Do you go along with it? Like if you're in, if you walk into corporate offices yeah. and you're pitching a job and they've all got pronouns and uh, they're all giving yeah. options, do you play along with it? No. Or? no, I, you know, many times I was given forms or, you know, on online profiles, choose your pronouns, I never choose. Uh, just look at me. Yeah. You can tell I'm a, I'm a man. Yeah. I'm a bit too pretty, but I'm still a man, <laughs> right? Uh, and, uh, and I think that the fact that, that a three-year-old can tell if I'm a man or a woman, I'm a boy or a girl, it's very telling about how stupid this whole thing is, you know, that, uh, that some people can have periods, regardless, if you're, a, regardless <laughs> if you're a woman or not, what the heck? Oh, I know it's, it's, it's and I and like in, 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 the, in this you know this whole world of brands you know this is very present and uh, in relation to brand communications you know it all started with the rainbow effect many brands painting themselves rainbow uh, which is you know is very self-serving and uh, advertising uses culture as a lever you know to be more relevant to seem more relevant so people pay attention to you and eventually buy from you and wokeness is the cultural zeitgeist it's is the discourse of the moment so brands are doing that to gain from it, to take advantage from it. Do they truly believe that this is the case? For some people, possibly, you know, because organizations are, you know, a collective of individuals. Some individuals that, uh, you know, the, the son is gay or the daughter <laughs> is trans, is transitioning or whatever. For these people, that will probably be very relevant. <clears throat> but when you look at what what is what is the the, the 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 classification the technical classification of of what is going on it's actually a mental condition it's called gender dysphoria and you can be as uh, you know as light or as heavy on the spectrum of gender dysphoria but it is still a condition it's not a badge of honor to be carried and uh, oh look at me I'm trans oh, today wow. today I woke up feeling like a giraffe tomorrow I wake up feeling like a rhino and maybe the day after I'll wake up feeling like a woman that is and because so of... phobic and so politically incorrect and I love that you're saying it so and look I think every every individual if if anyone if you know if I if someone who is a, a biological male asks me to call him a she I will do that because you know out of respect to that person and i think that everyone deserves to be respected and recognized for what they are but i would i wouldn't you know uh, put myself beneath that and nowadays being a man is almost a crime and Correct. as much as you, right. as you can hear my accent when you look at me i don't look brazilian i'm just a white guy yeah and it's it's a crime it's a yeah. crime to be a man and uh, and it's a crime to be white so you actually look a little brown, so you're a little safer. But um, what I um, what uh, really scares the hell out of me is that governments have included this lunacy on official forms, on your passport, on your birth certificate. You're now having options. So when it reaches that stage, 
I believe that um, there's a lot more behind it than just some kind of mental dysfunction. It's, this is planned. Yes, yeah, it's, uh, it's what fascism is all about. They yes. control. They start <laughs> by control, controlling your language because they can control your thoughts and then they can control your actions. That's, that's what this is all about. It's not really about giving dignity to maybe underrepresented groups. Correct. It's, uh, it's something else. Correct. And everyone is being distracted by the discourse. Sergio, there's still so much I'd love to unpack with you, but we've run out of time for this session. So thank you very, very much. I really appreciate you being so open, honest and sharing. Thank you. Yeah, uh, it will be risky, but it should be fun. <laughs> well, I've had a good time. Good. <laughs> Ooh.